all over again. You're listening to the news on RTHK. The weak global economy. The volatility and the upswings and the moods. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome to Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra-Hora. U.S. stocks join a global retreat in equities. Greece attacks creditors as the ECB weighs its next liquidity step. And does the decline in Chinese stocks signal the end of the bull market? Crude oil is trading up at $60 per barrel for the first time this year, even as global bond markets have lost about $340 billion since the start of last week. More on markets and uh, discussion on all of this today with Macquarie's Erwin Sanft. Next, uh, we'll talk with... Uh, Altaya's Paolo Pong on wine investment. He's the known in Hong Kong as the king of wine. And lastly, we'll talk with Kenrick Chung of Convoy Financial on their latest findings on the MPF. Stuart Allcroft joins us as guest host. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Renita. So stocks are down, treasuries are down, Brent crude oil is at $67 per barrel. What's happening, Stuart? Oh, panic, panic. (laughs) (laughs) No, I think it's just the corrections at long last that um, probably the markets have been expecting, but they needed to have a little bit of a breather. Something that everybody's been waiting for, huh? Exactly. Okay, well, Treasuries uh, fell with European bonds as uh, oil has rallied to above $60 per barrel, and U.S. stocks fell sharply overnight on worries about these higher oil prices, and also the U.S. trade deficit and the Greek debt crisis. The Dow Jones Industrial Average lost 142 points to finish at 17,928. The S&P 500 fell 1.2% to 2,089, while the Nasdaq sank 1.6% to 4,939. America's trade deficit surged to its highest level in nearly six and a half years in March, as uh, imports rebounded strongly after being held down by a labor dispute at a key West at key West Coast ports. The Commerce Department said that uh, the trade deficit jumped over 43% to 51.4%. Four billion U.S. dollars. That's the biggest rise in percentage terms in almost 20 years. Economists had forecast that the deficit would come in at 41.2 billion dollars. Bank of Tokyo Mitsubishi chief financial economist Chris Rupke says that the U.S. trade data means that the real U.S. GDP might go negative. The trade deficit jumped over 40 percent in one month to 51.4 billion in March as the West Coast port strike effect got resolved favorably for the economy. Imports rose 7.7%. Real GDP might go negative now in the first quarter as imports surged, but the economy is down and not out. There is a silver lining in the report in that exports of goods to the world rose 1.2% in March. Exports look to have put in a bottom after falling in part due to the cold winter weather and strong dollar rally. 
The Greek finance minister has played down expectations that his country will achieve a new agreement with the European Union at a meeting yesterday. Just a day before the cash-strapped Greek government is supposed to repay more than a billion dollars to the International Monetary Fund. That's next Monday we're talking about. Yanis Varoufakis was speaking after meeting his French counterpart in Paris. We are certainly going to have a fruitful discussion on May 11 that will uh, confirm the great progress that has been achieved and will be yet another move and yet yet another step in the direction of uh, the final agreement. Columbia Business School professor Charles Calamiris says that the Greeks are playing a crazy game of chicken. From the very beginning, when it was discussed two years ago, the Germans implicitly agreed that they would go along with a debt restructuring as part of a reform plan. The key point here is that all along people have understood the arithmetic of this. This is not news. The news is that the Greek government decided not to go along with combining this right down with with reform. They they basically have been playing a a kind of crazy game of chicken. The the problem for Greece right now, of course, is the need to come up with funds to pay off their debt servicing obligations. And they can't get those debt servicing obligations rolled over unless they can get the agreement of their creditors. And that's that's why it's urgent. And it'll be urgent, let's say, within the next month. The European Commission has revised its forecast for Greek growth sharply downwards, saying that the economy there has suffered an alarming slump in the first three months of this year. Pierre Moscovici is the EU Economic Affairs Commissioner. In light of the persistent uncertainty Uh, A a downward revision has been unavoidable. Uh, We now expect uh, GDP to grow by only 0.5% in 2015 before a strong rebound uh, to 2.9% in 2016. But Mr. Moscovici was more upbeat about prospects for the 19-country eurozone, despite the downgrade for Greece. And HSBC says that its business has recovered well after a weak end to last year. The bank posted a pre-tax profit of 7.1 billion U.S. dollars between January and March. That was up 4% from the same quarter last year and well above market forecasts. Revenues from investment banking bounced back while bad loan provisions dwindled. And about two weeks ago, HSBC began a review of where it should be headquartered in light of higher taxes in the UK. Its chief executive, Stuart Gulliver, says that he expects a decision to be made by the end of this year. It's going to take us a few months to do this, but it's measured in months, not measured in years to make this decision. And then what we will need to do as the management is to go to the board with a recommendation. And then actually we'll need a EGM where we will need to go to shareholders if indeed that study uh, recommends or concludes that actually um, the best place to headquarter the group is not in the UK. So until we've done that work, it's impossible to quantify what the savings might be. But I would expect to be in a position to go back to the board by the year end. China's bull market turned 883 days old yesterday. That translates to a 119% surge in the Shanghai Composite. Stocks declined yesterday, but uh, the Xinhua News Agency says that it's not the end of the bull run. And this may even help markets enter a slow bull phase advocated by regulators. Now, whenever the bull run does end, uh, Templeton Emerging Markets Chairman Mark Mobius says that China stocks are poised for a 20% drop. There's definitely uh, going to be a correction. There's no question about that. 
And but the question is, I pointed out previously, is when? Right. When will that? I mean, when you get a bull market, it can last a lot longer than people expect. But if you're a technician, for example, if you look at the gaps on the way up in the chart, you realize that eventually those gaps have to be closed. And that results in roughly a 20% correction from where we are now. Now, it depends on how much further it goes. But I think we're now probably reaching the point where, you know, it's not going to be going up much more. Yeah. Mainly because of the IPOs. You must remember, IPOs have been coming in fast and furious. So this will draw money out as well. And foreigners, which is true, now are beginning to come in more and more because their custodians have approved uh, the custodian arrangements in China. Uh, but they were not going to rush in because they realized we're at a high point. So, Stuart, I can see you shaking your head there. Do you disagree? <laughs> well, you know, I think that China is getting all sorts of comments. Uh, Mark Mobius, who I used to work with many years ago, um, is a very uh, key specialist on that market. So you have to listen to what he has to say. But China has um, so many different avenues with which it can raise more money and keep the money going. So um, I'm not convinced that we're at the end of the bull market for China yet. All right. Well, let's uh, bring in our first guest this morning, Erwin Sanft, who is the head of China strategy at the Macquarie Group. Good morning, Erwin. Yes, good morning. So, Erwin, what is your view on this? Have we reached the end of the bull run? No, I'm with uh, Stuart. I, I think uh, the bull run is driven by uh, credit easing, which, you know, we, we've had that for more than a year now. But until China swings across and starts to tighten credit in its economy, it's very hard to see what, um, you know, what will bring an end to this bull market. And so if there is a correction coming at some point, when do you think it might be and what could trigger it? Well, it's going to be credit tightening, so we would have to monitor, you know, interbank rates, uh, look at where property prices um, are heading. Essentially, credit tightening would be triggered by a faster-than-expected recovery in China's economy. But that's not something that's on the cards over the next three months or indeed over the, really the next six months. So this uh, month of May, we're expecting one more rate cut and before the end of next month, uh, two more triple R cuts. So, so that is going to fuel uh, bullish sentiment in the near term. So what we're seeing in a way is the discouragement of the previously very successful wealth management products in China, which are around about $3 trillion of assets. Do you think there will be a lot of people moving money out of those into, into stocks? We're seeing that movement happening at the moment, uh, but we look at those uh, trust products, wealth management products as pseudo-bond instruments. Exactly. Yeah. So I think the uh, government's desire now, and I think financial reform is really a big uh, theme in the market for this year, is to bring into sort of create a, a more normal bond market, something uh, more similar to what we see in the US and elsewhere. So uh, some of the money they would like to move, I think, out of the property market and out of those products into uh, proper into the into regular investment basically. regular fixed income yes. instruments yes. Yes. Um, but also you know I, I, what I'm seeing at least and I, I'd, I'd be interested in your view a lot of what China's doing is also what is being asked of it to be done by MSCI and FTSE to enable China to participate in global indices 
Now, we know that in August this year, both those index companies are due to review the, the inclusion of China and, and, and make changes if appropriate. What's your bet? Well, MSCI, I think, is probably the key um, uh, party or organization sort of the middle of what's going on just because um, they're the main index provider globally. And they've already said they're going to adopt an all-China approach. So that means they've already created the shadow indices, you know, the Overseas Chinese Index and the uh, International Asia Index, which they're running alongside the main indices uh, for future inclusion. So in January, at the end of January of this year, they announced that the Overseas uh, China Index is going to go in in November. So that's mm-hmm. already confirmed, which will increase um, China's weight further and will bring in all those um, interest Interesting, you know, high-growth companies that are listed in the U.S., particularly in the internet sector, they'll bring them into the index for the first time. For the A shares, I mean, our discussions. I know MSCI are really trying to sponsor an accelerated schedule, but uh, our discussions with the big global funds is that they still remain quite resistant. So it may take another 12 months of hard work to get there, but it is on the agenda. But the global funds, as opposed to the index provider. Yeah, the, I think the, uh, the fact that China still has significant capital control and for large size of fund movement, it's still very difficult to move in and out of the market, the Asia market. So there is still a lot of resistance to inclusion in the near term. However, I, I think everyone's at the table working out what the solution's going to be. And I, I, we're targeting 2017 as the year where A shares will go in to global indices, which is, you know, n- not too far away, I guess. Yes, thank you. Uh, Erwin, um, you know, most of the money inflow into China has been done by domestic investors. When do you see foreigners rushing in? Do you think it would be timed with uh, that uh, 2016? So, sorry, your question is on the Asia market? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just I've just come back from a global marketing trip, and I would say um, international investors are less interested in A-shares than they were a year ago because, uh, unfortunately, just some of the um, details of the Stock Connect um, um, a lot of funds haven't got internal approvals to use it yet, so we've still seen a very low take-up. But more more so than sort of technicalities like that, um, a lot of the A-shares which international investors were interested to invest in have just gone up so much that they're backing off. And now that the Hong Kong market has um, uh, shaken off its slumber and, and hurtled upwards, uh, behind the Asia market, um, the Hong Kong market is still a much easier place to deploy money. And so I think they're now spending most of their time back looking at the Hong Kong stocks. Okay, so eight shares it is. All right, Irwin, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Irwin Samft, and he is the head of China strategy at the Macquarie Group. Well, last year, China consumed more red wine than any other country in the world, and uh, that includes actually Hong Kong, which is Asia's wine hub. Joining us now to look at wine as an investment is Hong Kong's king of wine, Paolo Pong. He's the managing director of Altaya Wines. Good morning, Paolo. Good morning. So, Paolo, uh, wine investment, um, this is something that has grown over the past few years uh, in terms of the interest of Hong Kong people. Uh, is it, uh, how seriously would you say it, it is regarded as an asset class? Well, uh, wine has always been a very uh, interesting investment for, for lots of people. And 
It's been talked about as the most interesting and, and most rewarding alternative investment uh, in, in some years. But uh, in the past, I would say, five years or so, we've seen some real boom and bust moments for wine. So uh, we've, we've gone through a very uh, volatile cycle, and, and now uh, people are definitely looking at wine again as, uh, as an investment platform. Now, specifically in terms of what to invest in, you are suggesting that uh, Burgundy is going to overtake Bordeaux. Is that right? Yeah, in the, in the past couple of years, uh, Bordeaux has really gone through a big slump. Um, from the height of 2011, uh, certain brands, especially at the top end, such as Chateau Lafitte uh, and, and some of the, the other first growths, have gone down by uh, up to 60% in value. So Burgundy has really taken over, and, and people are getting more in, uh, interested in uh, investing in Burgundy and, and consuming Burgundy because they are harder to come across. They are they are definitely uh, rarer and in smaller production. So people have um, switched over, especially at the top end, to um, buy and, and invest in, in Burgundy. Now, would you say that this means that the Hong Kong wine consumer is becoming uh, less brand conscious or, you know, are they still sort of uh, pretty brand loyal but just switching the type of wine? It, it's still very much a, a brand game. Um, in, in Burgundy, we have the likes of um, Domaine de la Romani Conti, uh, in short form, it's called DRC. Uh, there's Le Roi, there's a, another one called Rousseau, uh, Rumier. These are all the blue chips of Burgundy. And um, in terms of investing as well as drinking, uh, the connoisseur really look into uh, 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 the top uh, echelon of, of the wine world. So in Burgundy, is is still about brands. Paolo Stewart here. Um, when you're talking Hi, about uh, Burgundy and, and wines, uh, you, you've been focusing very much on the red wine area, uh, and, and that associates um, eating meat as well because people drink wine when they're eating. And, and yet the majority of people in Hong Kong eat fish. So what about white wines? Do you have any similarity there? Um, white wines, well, people are afraid of the uh, longevity. I mean, the, the fact that red wine, uh, you hear people drinking wines from the 60s, 50s, 40s, uh, I mean, that they, they, they can actually age uh, uh, very well. Not, I mean, of course, in, in, in the best uh, uh, scenario, some of the white wines can last just as long, but they're just not as interesting when, they, when you drink a 50, 60-year-old white. So from an um, investment so, point of view, then they don't match up to the reds? Yeah, in, in terms of investment angle as well as a, a consumption angle, people tend to focus on red wine more. However, champagne is, is definitely uh, an interesting uh, vehicle because uh, it, it does lo- last for longer and uh, it can be uh, extremely rewarding in terms of investment. Paolo, um, you know, since we're talking about investments, I mean, you know, buying wine, holding on to it, um, you know, with the objective of perhaps selling it, is there an active trading platform here in Hong Kong? Well, thanks to the abolishment of the wine packs in 2008, Hong Kong has really developed into a very important wine trading center in the world. Um, uh, We're much more liquid than a few years ago. There are now, of course, wine merchants, uh, uh, wine auctions, 
uh, and of course foreign wine merchants opening shops in Hong Kong that has uh, made Hong Kong into a very active and, and liquid uh, uh, wine trading center uh, in the world. So um, Hong Kong is now as interesting as London, I would say, uh, and, and of course uh, as interesting as New York in terms of wine trading. So people buy and sell every day now, and there are now smaller platforms, there are internet websites that help you uh, uh, buy and sell wines. Can you name a few for our listeners who might be interested? Well, auction houses, of course, you have the Sotheby's and, and, and Christie's. Uh, in terms of the foreign wine merchants, the, the likes of Berry Brothers, Corny and Barrow, uh, and, and, you know, Far Vintners, they're all in Hong Kong. Of course, ourselves, our Thai wines, uh, as a local merchant, we buy and sell on a daily basis. All right, Paulo, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Paulo Pong, and he is the managing director at uh, Altaya Wines. A quick look at the numbers this morning. Australia's ASX index is a down uh, 0.15% to 5,807. Sold's Cosby also down down half a percent to uh, 2,122. In currencies, one euro is currently valued at 1.11 US dollars. One US dollar is trading at 119.94 yen and one pound sterling will buy you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 75 cents and 1.51 US dollars. The Labor Department will stage a large-scale job fair at Discovery Park Shopping Center in Chunwan from May 12th to 14th. Over 100 employers will offer a wide range of positions and accept applications on the spot. Please visit www.jobs.gov.hk or call 2852-4922 for details. The time is now 8.24 a.m. and local news has reported that Hong Kong's compulsory employee savings scheme, the MPF, has enjoyed its best average monthly return in years at 5.5%, 5.28% actually, uh, because of the bull market. So let's bring in our next guest, Kenrick Chung, Convoy Financial Services Director of MPF Business Development. Good morning, Kenrick. Good morning, everybody. So, Kenrick, uh, you know, uh, we've just gotten uh, the uh, MPF uh, index numbers on Monday. Can you give us a rundown of the latest figures? Yeah, sure, of course. Uh, by the end of April, the Conway MPF Composite Index increased by nearly 8% in one month and reached an all-time high at 213. You know, the major contributor is, of course, the stock market. And uh, China and Hong Kong equity is the winners. And uh, another one is South Korean uh, equity, which grow by 28%. But in the MPF market, the percentage invest in South Korea equity fund is very small. Therefore, uh, we can say that the major contributors is China and Hong Kong equity. Certainly good news. What are we going to find uh, looking ahead? Yeah, looking ahead, we believe that the market, especially the stock one, is, uh, will remain very strong because of the various policy uh, of the Chinese uh, government. However, we will expect a, a, a bigger fluctuation in the market. For MPF, uh, this kind of a long-term investment, member has to remember to do a better risk management. It, it means that uh, they don't have to follow the market. They should not buy when the market is growing. Okay, uh, Kenrick Stewart here. Um, in um, your experience, are you seeing many uh, people with MPF product actually switching within the range of funds they have available to them? 
Yes, recently we have a lot of inquiries from uh, our customer about uh, how to invest in the Hong Kong equity funds, and they will they they will try to find whether uh, there is such kind of fund in their MPF scheme. Therefore, we we see a lot of uh, schemes switch by by the member uh, by the way of uh, switch of their personal account or they implement their right of the ECA employee choice arrangement. Mm, but that that's switching from one provider to another. What about switching from one fund within the same provider? Yes, within the same scheme, we we saw a lot of clients who who request uh, the switch of fund from, for example, from uh, from the bond fund or even from guarantee fund to the Hong Kong equity fund because uh, the members see the Hong Kong stock market increase a lot. With uh, last month, the Hong Kong stock market, I mean in the MPF market, uh, increased by 20%. Mm. And, and, and one of the arguments that is coming up in the industry is that, in fact, there are probably too many choices of funds for most members, which is also one of the reasons why the MPFA are quite keen on introducing their core fund choice. Mm. How do you think that will play out? Uh, I I I do not agree that there there are too many funds for the MPF member because the investment in restriction in the MPF is very strict. For example, uh, we cannot invest in any market which is not approved by the MPFA. For example, a few years ago, uh, the 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 BRICS market is was very popular. However, in the MPF, you cannot in, invest in in BRICS. It restricts. The, the, the investment horizon of, of the market and in long term in, it will affect the performance of the MPF member. So Kenrick, in terms of your recommendations to MPF scheme members, you suggested that they need to pay more attention to risk management. Can you tell us quickly what you mean by that or how? Okay. Uh, for risk management, uh, uh, as you, you saw yesterday, the stock market dropped suddenly after lunch by uh, 400 or 300 percent. Uh, uh, Pawns, sorry, lot, lot percent. It's, hor- it's too horrible. Yeah. Okay. That would be pretty bad. Yes. It, it will not happen. It will not happen. And uh, for MPF member, uh, they have to remember that there's uh, two kind of money in the account. The first one is the lump sum, which has already been invested. Another is the monthly contribution. Therefore, for better risk management, they should uh, uh, utilize the, 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 the force of dollar cost averaging to minimize the risk they will face, especially for price fluctuation. All right, Kenrick, thank you so much for joining us uh, this morning. That is Kenrick Chung, and he is the Director of uh, MPF Business Development at Convoy Financial Services. A quick look at the numbers before we close up the show. Australia's ASX index is uh, down 1.5% to uh, 5,744. Seoul's Kospi is down almost 1% to 2,112. Gold currently stands at $1,193.90 per ounce and Brent crude oil at $67.71. Stuart, here we are once again at the end of the show. Uh, your parting thoughts for the day? Well, I'm looking forward to see what happens in the UK election uh, tomorrow and um, probably within a week or so we'll find out whether Greek, Greece really is going to exit Europe. So, so a few things to look forward to. Yep, Europe, uh, UK and Greece on the agenda. Thank you so much, uh, Stuart, for joining us this morning. 
And every Wednesday morning, that is Stuart Allcroft. He is uh, our regular Wednesday guest host and chairman at City Trust. And I'm Renita Malhotrahora signing off for this morning's Money for Nothing. The weather forecast for today will be mainly cloudy with a few showers and sunny intervals during the day. The temperature right now is 25 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 93%. Time for the news with Sam Butler. Eleven days after the earthquake that devastated Nepal, aid workers say they're still not getting enough supplies to help the population. The Nepalese authorities said they're beginning to get the relief situation under control, but the BBC's Anu Anand, who spent two days in Chattara, northeast of the capital Kathmandu, says people are desperate. People are swarming around the helicopter, fighting for supplies. Someone described it to me today as saying tents were as vital as oxygen. People do have some stocks of grain. A lot of them grow their own food. But what they don't have at the moment is just somewhere to sleep, somewhere to get out of the sun, somewhere to protect children and the elderly from the hot sun. This is high altitude. A lot of people are getting dehydrated and very sick. And the thing we keep hearing is we've got one month, the rains are coming. These are steep, steep hillsides. And it's going to be devastating all over again. Five men suspected of involvement in last month's high-profile kidnapping case have reportedly been arrested in Guangdong. It's not clear whether they still have the $28 million ransom that was paid to them for the release of Queenie Law, the granddaughter of the founder of the Bossini clothing chain. Dozens of migrants are reported to have drowned in the latest disaster to strike people trying to reach Europe from Africa by boat. The aid group Save the Children said up to 40 people died when their rubber dinghy deflated.